Hi, I'm Dr. Mitch Harlan, and welcome to the Truth Talks Podcast. Today, I'm joined by an amazing guest, but before I introduce them to you, I want to ask that you please like and subscribe below. That way, we can continue to bring you these incredible stories, and if you're already liked and subscribed to our channel, we thank you for all of your support. Hi, and welcome to Truth Talks Podcast. I'm Dr. Mitch Harlan. I am here with the most special guest, Jarek Robbins. Jarek, how are you? Very good, sir. And yourself? Doing fantastic. You're a motivational speaker. You're an accomplished performance coach. Man, the names of the people that you help coach and you help in business is nothing less than impressive. I want to go through a couple things. I really want to hit hard on your book, um, live it. That is the message there really resonates with what we do at True Talks. Your brain is so full of experiential knowledge, which is another key word we like to use here. So if you don't mind for the next 30 minutes or so, we're just going to pick your brain. Hey, let's do it. Let's do it. So you're 37 years old. Uh, you are, we, we must admit, you are the son of probably the world's greatest speaker out there, or, or certainly one of the world's greatest speaker, Mr. Tony Robbins. So one of the things that does get a little bit interesting in that is I have to believe that some of your experience that, that you have accumulated over this time has to just be an amazing, amazing journey for you. Tell me a little bit about how you became Jarek Robbins, how you have become so successful in your coaching programs. Awesome. Well, a couple of things. One, for people watching, someone is going to hit you on this. It's Jarek. Jarek. It's okay, but someone's going to message you. So I figure I'll cut it short. <laughs> that way you don't get hated on by people who love go. me. And they're like, hey. I even looked that up on Google. <laughs> it's okay. Well, Google says it wrong too. And that's okay because every single teacher I've had since, I don't know, third grade or pre-K has, has jacked that up in different ways. So Damn I'm totally Google. used to it, but I'll catch it early so you don't get keyboard warriors attacking <laughs> you later. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, there's things that happened growing up that I had no clue didn't happen for other people. Um, it's kind of like a fish in water. You don't know you're in water. You don't know the difference. That's just how it is. Um, and, and in looking at that, so many things unfolded. I, I think it's important. I was listening to Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights, um, and he's talking about how there's green lights, things that help you excel in life. There's yellow lights, things that slow you down and cause you to question things. And then there's red lights, you know, things that slam on the hard brake, spin you around and leave you in a place you didn't even understand was going to happen. And you got to rebuild from there. And so growing up with a dad like Tony, uh, a mom like Liz and a grandma like Jenny, if I were to use those three, they all brought lessons that were unbelievable. My mom has one of the biggest hearts in the world. She cared about people so freaking much that, I mean, she wouldn't have any money whatsoever and she'd find a way to leverage a credit card, which she called access to capital. Um, so she'd leverage a credit card to go buy lunch for a homeless person. And so I did not grow up around her with a great money mindset, but I grew up with a massive heart of caring and giving and wanting to help other people, regardless of what position I was in or we were in. And so my mom gave me that caring element that was unbelievable. My grandma taught me how to play the hand you were dealt. Um, she's a woman. She's a mother of five. Uh, you know, back when she was young, women didn't work. Uh, eventually, as she she raised her children, which are my aunts and uncles and mom, and then got to a stage where women started to work. And she got into the workforce at that point in her life. She was a secretary like women did back then. Fast forward. Um, I said, Grandma, what was it like growing up? And she grew up in Southern California. She goes, you know, I remember as a kid, there was a pool in town, the one pool, and we'd go there and they'd let us colored kids swim and after we swam, they'd pull us out and they'd drain the pool. They'd get in there and bleach the pool and then clean it. So then the white kids could get in and not get dirty. I was like, oh my gosh, 
Um, she told me stories of my great grandfather who did pretty well as a tailor and then a real estate investor. He purchased a, a real estate investment in the part of town where he wasn't supposed to. And they told him, you can't buy here. He said, screw it. I'm going to. So he bought it. Two days later, they torched the place and burned it to the ground. And I was like, wow. And so she taught me, I was like, grandma, does that mean like you don't like people who don't like you? Does that mean, uh, what does it mean? And she's like, no, it means you take the hand you're dealt and you play the hell out of it. But, but she taught me that. And then my dad, my dad was a kid who grew up with no mentors, no coaches, no people around him. Um, you know, my grandma lived in humble beginnings through a lot of her life until my dad changed that for her. Um, she was married a bunch and had lots of stuff going on. And so he didn't come from a fruitful place. He didn't come from an abundant place. Uh, and if you ask any of my aunts or mom or anyone who knew him as a kid, they're like, oh, that guy, he was a big, tall, goofy, silly guy. And, and they're proud of him. He made it. He, he pushed through all that stuff. And so for him, you know, my grandma brings, my mom is care. My grandma is play the hand you're dealt. My dad is anything's possible. I mean, my God, if he can go from where he was to where he is, you know, a kid with no mentors, he got, it's a split depending on who you ask the story to. He got kicked out of the house at 17. Um, he was misbehaving. So <laughs> it depends on how you spin the story. Uh, well, there's something I want to talk to you about with this because, oh my God, this is what, whenever I look at a coach or I look at somebody, man, I got to have this realness. And you are so real everywhere you talk, everything I've seen. I want to I ask you this one thing. This is one thing that I thought, oh my God, this, this is what makes you so real. You were talking about when you got malaria, okay? And there were two things that I had read. One of them was that you'd called your dad and he said, listen, do whatever you're going to do with certainty, either take the medicine or not take the medicine. That should not help. <laughs> but I loved what your mom said, because it sounds exactly like my mom. Take the damn medicine. You're in some godforsaken place. You need to live. She throws it all down, comes to see you. I'm thinking, this is another one of the up and rising, greatest motivational speakers, real life speakers. And when I heard that story, I was all in on you, man. Does that make sense? It does. And in that case, my dad was like... There she goes, trying to rescue him again. And, and I'm, I'm, I mean, I felt like I was dying four times over in a hospital bed in the middle of nowhere in Uganda. And it's a beautiful place. Sit middle of nowhere is disrespectful. I'm going to be honest. It is an unbelievable country to visit. I can't wait to take my son back there and my wife to go see it. Uh, it's literally on our bucket list of places I want my family to go see because it's unbelievable there. It's beautiful, beautiful place, incredible people, wonderful place in the world. In the villages, it's rough. I mean, it's people still living in mud huts with thatch roofs still to this day. That's how they live. Very simple living. And there's lots and lots and lots of people who can't afford food, don't have access to water. Like, like, and, and even if you have the money, the other part was when I lived there, you could walk a quarter mile to where the market is, where there's supposed to be food. And some days there's just no food. No one brought anything to sell. You're like, oh my God. Like, even if I have the money, there physically is no food there to buy. So it's an interesting situation. Um, and that's rare, but, but it happens. And so with malaria, my God, I got my butt kicked. And there's a few reasons why. Number one, I grew up in Southern California we don't believe in standard medicine as far as the, the, what I was brought up. I didn't take vaccines. I didn't still don't, I didn't take medicine. If I had a headache, I would drink some vegetable juice and meditate and sleep and go sit in the sauna and do all the natural healing things. All that stuff works incredibly well about 90% of the time on most things. Malaria is not one of them. <laughs> When I told my healing or treatment plan to my doctor in Africa, in Uganda, he looked at me and said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You don't understand how serious this is. I was like, and like, I don't know. Uh, I do. And I'm going to go meditate and green drink on this and my body will cleanse itself and I'll be fine. 
And this doctor was like, I don't know how to explain this to you. That is, that is ridiculous. And I was stubborn enough to stick with my plan until, um, according to the doctor, I had 55,000 parasites per one red blood cell in my body. And I had about six days left to live. And at that point I was like, okay, I believe in measuring. And if, you know, measure, track, see what's working, change your approach, adjust accordingly. I was like, well, apparently my plan is making it extremely worse. So I need a new plan. And I'd be stupid not to have a new plan at that point. So I took the medicine. Uh, my mom, who did come out there, uh, it, it was a beautiful thing. She'd never traveled outside the country before besides, you know, Mexico maybe is in California. It's just easy drive. So she flew through London, uh, you know, through Egypt. When she got off the plane in Egypt, she told me the funniest story in the world. They, were, they had the stairs instead of the ramp. So she's yeah. going down the stairs. She has her one bag with her. The, when she gets to the bottom stair, the bag swings in front of her by accident. She trips and she lands on her hands and knees. Everyone on the stairs behind her breaks out clapping, thinking that she's <laughs> kissing the ground because she's grateful they landed safely. She's like, these people are rude. <laughs> she gets up and goes off, catches the next plane. She lands. They take her to a, a local hotel at night. And she's like, no, I want to see my son. Drive me to where he is. And she, they're like, it's not safe. You can't drive at night on these roads. Like if your car breaks down, you're dead. And then she's like, okay. So she sleeps at the hotel. She's like, I pull in. There's a dude with a giant machine gun at the gate. It's so scary. I'm like, he's there to protect you. And then there was a frog in my bathroom and bugs were trying to attack me. So she had all these beautiful stories. She finally gets there. And the best part was my grandma had told her that people in Africa wear bright colors. So when the, the taxi opened and my mom was wearing neon yellow from head to toe, I thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> I was like, what are you wearing? <laughs> and she's like, your grandma told me there were bright colors here. I was like, first off, Africa is a continent. So what part of Africa wears bright clothes? Second, look around. No one has neon yellow on. So everyone in the village was like, what in the world is that? As she walked through, it was sweet. Um, fast forward the whole thing. I took the medicine, had probably the worst 11 days of my life. There's a dude named Jack that I owe my life to literally who sat there for the first few nights when I was laying on the ground, throwing up diarrhea, puking, couldn't keep anything in. I went from about 210 pounds down to about 180 over, mm -hmm. over a couple weeks. It was really bad. Nothing could stay in and it was all coming out. And so it was horrible. Um, and this guy, spent just days next to me with a bucket and a rag hitting my forehead with cool water to try to keep me from overheating. Um, and, and yeah, I made it through that. Luckily, my mom would have done the same thing. And I love that. And I also love the, the article where it was talking about how your dad was just like, you know, whatever you do, do it with certainty. Right. And again, that's kind of his MO and it's part of that motivational thing, but I love the realness when it was like, I'm taking the medicine, man. I'm going to go ahead and do this thing, and I'm going to go ahead and live through it. I always look for the realness in people. Like, where is that reality of it is? Because to a lot of people, you're bigger than life. Um, you know, you coach some of the most amazing people in the world, but I think they also want to know that you're real, right? Like, you live the same types of lives that they do. It's just you live it differently based on experiences that you have. And I'll segment that into your book, right? Live it. Um, a little excerpt out there I want to talk about. So many people are so busy being busy that they don't spend time on the foundation of their life. Uh, I love that saying, man. That's, um, uh, and that's me sometimes. Is that you as well? All of us. All of us. It, it's something where, um, let me see where to pick this point up, where it would make most sense for people. If you rewind, people want to know that we're all the same. The truth is we have emotions that are all the same. We have thoughts that are all the same. We have feelings and days that are all the same. But the God honest truth is we're not all the same. We're all different. People can look at me and be like, oh, 
your life must have been so easy in certain ways. And I could honestly say in some ways, it probably was easier than yours or someone else's. And if I look at your life, there's probably some way in your life that your life was easier than mine. And, and, and that's the truth. We all have something in our life. And maybe someone along the lines of David Goggins would go, nothing in my life was easy. Like, maybe, but that's why you're stronger than 90% of humans mentally, emotionally, and physically. So it, th- that becomes what becomes easy is your future when you had to go through hell and back as a kid because you've gained muscle that no one else had to gain at that stage or age of their life. And so the shit they're going to struggle with later, you're going to cruise through because you did all the work early for people who had a smooth and easy childhood and no hard work. Their hard's going to come later. Derek, Some I people love that. dealt with that stuff very early. So I to love them, that. they'd be like, eh, and walk right through it. David Goggins, if he got, he's not going to, but knock on wood, <laughs> I hope he doesn't. He's a good guy. But if something happened to him and he had to deal with six months of working out in a solitary confinement container, I don't think he'd have any issues at this point. <laughs> Dude would come out looking like the Hulk even more on the other side. Like he's done the hard work. He's lived through it already. Now things are easy for him because he's already been through hell and back. And so that piece of easy or not just determines on where you want the hard part to be. Circling back, I wrote this in my book. My dad gave me an invitation along the way because he said, hey, certain things were easier for you. Do you want the hard now or do you want it later? And I did some calculations. I was like, well, wait a second. If it's easy, either easy, hard, or hard, easy, I'd rather do the hard, easy. What do you mean by hard? Like, what do I go first? He said, why don't you come up to Canada and learn how to stack lumber for three months? I was like, how hard could that be? Bad question. <laughs> but, but how hard could it be? You're moving wood around, a lumberjack. I get it. Okay, no big deal. It was way harder than I imagined. And... There's three parts of that story that are really important. Number one, when I got there, I had a chip on my shoulder, like David Goggins talks about his. And and I was like, you know what? I'm going to prove who I am and what I'm about. Got up at 4.30 in the morning, worked out in the gym, went running and lifting weights for 30 minutes, got to the side of the freeway by 6 a.m. sharp, 5.55 to be honest, because at 6, the van would stop. It was full of workers. It would open. You get in, it closes, and you keep driving. If you are not on the side of the freeway at that time, the van will leave you and you now have to drive yourself an hour to the lumber yard. And so it's, it's a no miss. There's a standard and you do not miss this. So every morning on the freeway, 6am picked up by a van of workers off to the lumber yard, stacked all day, got home. And, and then when I got home after, you know, eight, eight hours of stacking wood all day, um, Some of those woods were just little slat boards. Some of those woods were 400 pound chunks of wood that we were moving as a team. And it was all day, nonstop. Got home because I was trying to prove something. Uh, I'd go go straight to the gym, lift weights, run another mile, and then eat dinner and go straight to bed six days a week. In the beginning, my step-grandpa pulled me aside and said, don't do this. You're going to physically burn out and hurt yourself if you keep doing this morning, evening stuff on top of the work. The work is hard enough. Like, no way. I'm doing it the whole time. All three months, I'm going to do this every day, morning and night, no matter what. So I stuck with it, and I did it. About halfway through, I remember this chatter that I hear a lot from young people in the workplace right now. And the chatter was, I'm smarter than this. I'm better than this. I'm more educated than this. I should be the one leading. Why are they telling me what to do? This was the stupidest job idea I ever took. I should go take a better job than this. I should be making way more money than this. All these thoughts. And I remember, I mean, I got fired up. I was like, this is crap. I I shouldn't be doing this. This is stupid. And then I remember a conversation I had with a gentleman who was probably in his 70s. His nickname was Uncle Dubai because he had stacked lumber in Dubai in 100-plus degree weather. He had stacked lumber in Canada in negative, ice-cold, freezing weather. He had stacked lumber all over the world, and he'd been doing it since he was 18 years old. And I remember I asked him, I mean, is stacking lumber your passion in life? He's like, no. 
as to the, why did you choose to stack lumber from 18 to 70 plus years old? You know, 50, 60 years of your life, you've been stacking lumber. He said, because in, in my culture, he's, he was Indian from India. He said, in my culture, the oldest living male becomes financially responsible for the entire family. And at 18, his dad died and he became the oldest living male in his family. And at 18 years old, he said, the only thing I could do was this, that I, I was trained for, ready for. So he said, I got this job and I've been blessed to have this job my entire life. Something I can do every single day to take care of my family. And I remember I walked into the bathroom and I looked myself in the mirror and I just thought, who the fuck do you think you are? You're sitting here bitching and moaning and complaining about an opportunity that life has given you. And then I thought about it and I said, you know what? My generation, at least, we haven't lived through a time when grown men and women would stand in line all day for the opportunity to put in an hour's work to afford a loaf of bread, just the bread to take home to your family and feed your kids. We haven't lived through that. We don't have any sensory experience of what that's like. And I remember standing there and just thinking, my God, if this is the opportunity that was put in front of me, instead of bitching and moaning about how I deserve better, why don't I figure out how to become the best at it? And that was a game-changing moment about halfway through. And I said, you know what? Screw it. If this is what I had to do the rest of my life to take care of the ones I love, I'm going to find a way to fall in love with this process right now. And if I can fall in love with this, I can fall in love with anything life gives me to do is my opportunity to work. What I really love and what resonates with me so much with you is that in Truth Talks, we take that in the middle, right? The learn it, between the learn it and give it is the live it. And I love how you take story of other people, apply it to your life, and then apply it to all the coaching that you do. I personally think that's the way people learn. You fast forward their life, and I love that, because you talked about one segment, you know, everybody wanted to lift the, the great big heavy boulder to say, hey, I'm really strong, but it was those pebbles that you pick up every day that brings you to that great leadership, and and that was just, uh, dude, I can't even tell you, I, I just freaking love it. And But I want to talk about live it. Live it, I think, is the most unbelievable section in what you do, because I think it's the most important segment for people to change their lives, whether that be business or personal. I know you do a lot of business coaching with a lot of people, but I tend to find when I listen to you, I apply it more to my personal self than even the businesses that I run. But talk to me a little bit about living it. So living it was an observation, and someone said something recently that really stung. And I went, ooh, and I had to dig around in my own soul and say, is that true? Um, what I noticed was, and I grew up around seminars, believe it or not, I did. Uh, and so <laughs> at seminars, I mean, just so you know, my dad's event is probably one of the most attended and amazing events in the world, the, the Unleash the Power Within one. Um, they have, I think, 400,000 plus people a year. He just did a live five-day challenge on Facebook with 900,000 people live for five days. So the reach they have is unbelievable. And the, growing up around there, I noticed a trend. It was people who would attend and then immediately be like, everyone I know needs this. And they would start doling out whatever lesson they grabbed onto at the event. They'd be like, you have to do this. It's all about a peak state. It's all about your mindset. It's all about like, they just start throwing information at people. And then I watched the people who they'd throw the information at and they'd just be like, okay, and move on. And they didn't accept it. It didn't land. And then I went and interviewed some of those people. I'm like, why did it land? The inf does, do you think it's not true? And they're like, no, I'm sure it's true. But look at the person telling me, like they're not doing it. I went, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, it wasn't that the information wasn't good. It wasn't that they didn't think their life or business would be better. It wasn't that it wasn't helpful. It was the person who told it to them wasn't living it. So they're like, if they're not even doing it, why should I do it? I went, oh, my gosh. That's so blatantly obvious. 
Now, someone said something I heard probably a week or two ago, and they said the reason most people are so trying, so outwardly trying to help everyone else is they don't want to sit down and deal with their own bullshit. I went, oh, well, that's interesting. I was like, tell me more, podcast boy. Like, what else you got in there? And, and this guy went on and he says, most people are so scared of their own demons. They don't want to have to sit down and deal with it. So instead, they outwardly project trying to help everybody all the time to fix theirs so that they don't have to sit in the mirror and deal with their own. I went, wow. I've seen that a lot. And it rang back to those people who learn something and it's really scary. It's risky. I mean, it takes some guts to actually apply it and see if it's really going to work or not, but they skip that part and they're like, Ooh, I know how I'm going to connect with everybody. Instead of actually doing the hard part, I'm just going to go spew all the thoughts at other people. So they think I'm great and I don't have to deal with my own crap in between. And I went, Ooh, and then I thought about it. I'm like, I wrote a book about this years ago. I just didn't think of it in the way that this podcast person said it the other day. And I was like, that's so true. That's why they're skipping the live it part. Cause it's scary. It's uncomfortable. It's risky. And so when you look at the statistical truth of reality, it is scary to deal with those stats. It is scary to deal with 50% of marriages fail. I have friends who go, I'm, I'm just not the marriage kind of guy. I'm just not the marriage kind of gal. I'm like, no, you're scared shitless that you won't do it right. <laughs> I'm like, that's yeah. okay. No one's doing it right. But if you keep trying, you can figure it out. You know, you, it's like meeting someone who's massively overweight and they're like, I'm just not a workout kind of guy. Yeah. I'm like, that's okay. You'll die early. And then the workout kind of people will keep living or you'll figure out how to do the scary thing, which is actually going and facing the uncomfort of doing the work and getting yourself healthy. Yeah. I mean, dead on, man. You know, we, I call them data points, right? You can't argue with data points. They're just going to kick you every single time. Is that, but the way that you change that perspective and the reality that you bring, I have found in doing this that it is that reality that, that brings you back to center, right? And it actually, I think when you really address the reality of a situation, it actually makes it less scary. Like, yep, you know what? I do understand it. 50% of the time, this is, this is going to happen. I mean, hell, I'm married. I have kids. I know I'm not doing it right all the time. Maybe if you talk to my wife, maybe less than 50% of the time. But it is that kind of motivation thing to keep going, man, and, and just keep going. Well, tactically speaking, there's a brilliant, brilliant writer named Annie Duke. She wrote a book called Thinking in Bets. Um, she was an education-focused scholar, her brother was the world champion of poker players. So she was like, okay, what's the buzz? Like, teach me, write down on a little sticky note, what are the five things I need to do to win every game of poker? She went and followed it and won a bunch of games. And then at a certain level started losing. She went back and went, what the hell? I'm doing the five things and I started losing now. And he goes, oh, that's not everything. Those are just kind of the starting five things. Well, she's like, shit, here's a second <laughs> sticky note. Write the rest down. So she, he wrote it down. She did it, and she became a world champion. She won the bracelet, the whole thing. I was like, oh, my gosh, what a boss move. Like, she really did it. Um, now, she teaches hedge funds and sales teams, all those things, her process of thinking in bets, which means what are the odds this is going to work out or not? And so it's one of the most brilliant little simple things I've learned when you go to go do anything, if you're going to go live it, if you're going to go apply your vision, if you're going to design the life you want and make it happen, once you have the plan mapped out, you got to sit down and say, okay, with my current habits, what are the odds it's going to somehow lead to this life? And if you look at it and you're like, well, I don't get up early. I don't read my vision. I don't take cold showers. I don't work out. I don't eat healthy. And somehow I'm going to become Mr. or Mrs. Olympia. No, the odds are like negative 100. <laughs> like it ain't happening. But if you start eating healthy, working out, getting around the right people, doing the right habits, physically, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, getting yourself in the right place, now you might have a 25% chance of making this happen. You build the right peer group. Uh, you set up the my daily routines, you get enough sleep, you get enough, you start doing the right nutritional plan. Now it might be 50-50 or 60-40.
as you start to put new habits in place, every one of those habits starts to tilt the odds in your favor. And I was like, that is brilliant. She was so smart for that because all of a sudden you can look at anything you want to do and just say, what are the odds? What are the odds based on my daily routine, based on my habits, based on my mindset, based on who I know and how I do me, what are the odds me is going to add up to that? And then you just do some math and you say, okay, if those are the current odds, I got a 20% chance of living that kind of life. What could I do to tilt the odds in my favor? Is there something I could learn? Is there someone I could learn with? Is there a book I could read? Is there a degree I could get? Is there a company I could learn or work within? Is there a partner I could get? Is there a person I could recruit for my company? Is there, you know, what is it that can start to tilt the odds in my favor? And as you do that, all of a sudden, the odds of living the life you want, 50-50, 60-40 in your favor, 70-30, 80-20, you have an 80% chance of living the life you desire because of all these micro things we switched one by one by one by one until one day you wake up and you're living it and you're like, holy mackerel, how did I do that? And it was one habit, one person, one situation at a time. And it just turned the odds in your favor. You know what? Let, let's take this to, in, into a, a real reality discussion, right? All right. So I have a talk show here. You know, we do this podcast. You're obviously a higher, a very high desired guest that I wanted just because of so many different reasons of who you are and what you're about. And I resonate so much with your message. So I send you an email, or not an email, I send you a Facebook deal. I guess we can probably talk about this. If not, <laughs> this, is how it, this is how it happens, right? But then I thought, okay, well, that's okay, because if I can't get him that way, I know some people who know him. And if he doesn't answer me this time, which I didn't even know if the message would ever get to you, but I thought, if not, I'm going to the next step, and I'm going to get his friends to tell him he needs to come on this show. And if I don't get to that one, then I got one more level, which is the ultimate level, is I have an avenue through your father, and I thought, you know what, I'm still going to get him. I'm going to get him one way or another. I'm going to get him. I think that what I love about what I hear from you is exactly everything that you just explained. I wasn't going to stop till I got you, or you filed a restraining order against me, which... I don't know if your team is like, man, maybe we need to put a straining order on this guy. But did we do that the right way? I mean, you coach some of the greatest minds in the world. How was our approach? What did you think? So I'll tell you, that approach is how I got into college. And I, I, I decided there were three schools I really wanted to go to. So I wrote my application and sent all my stuff to Cornell, uh, UC Boulder, and University of San Diego, three schools kind of across the country. Uh, somehow I got accepted to Cornell. Somehow I got accepted to CU Boulder. And then the University of San Diego declined me. So as all great competitive people, I went, well, shit, that's where I'm going, clearly. Uh, and and uh that's the only way to do it. When someone says no, that's what's going to happen then. So as silly as this is, I decided I was going to the University of San Diego and I scrapped the other two choices and I went all in on the people who told me no. And, and my simple idea was I'm going to, I lived in San Diego, so I'm going to drive down to the admissions office. I'm going to make friends with whoever the hell wrote no on my application. And I'm going to be friends with them every single day until they let me in period. And I was willing to skip a semester. I was willing to skip a year. I was willing to skip two years. I was going to hit their office every day until they let me into this place, period. And so I, I went down there. I introduced myself. I met the gentleman who had said no. He, he said, it's not, you, it's not you. It's just the way we do the applications and we filter for these things and we, we you know sign off and do all this stuff. I'm like, well, it is me and I'm here now. So you're the guy. Let's talk. And we went back and forth on this or that and this. And we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I just kept coming. I'm like, I'm going to come every day until you say yes. And he's like, okay, well, that's not how it works. So, you know, I'll let you know. And I was like, no, see you tomorrow. <laughs> I will be here. And I just kept coming. Eventually, when he found out I was really serious and I would not stop annoying him, eventually he went, well, here's the deal. There's a second wave of admissions 
if someone we gave a spot to declines their spot and goes somewhere else, there is a possibility you might be able to get one of those spots. I can't promise you, I can't approve it. It's the group that's going to decide, but I could put in a word for you. I'm like, can you write an endorsement for my application then? You know me. I mean, we hung out every day for last month. <laughs> <laughs> write, write something for me. It would help if you're on the team and you happen to say, I think this is a good idea. So he wrote a cover letter for my application to the university that he decides, you know, him and his crew decides who gets in and who doesn't. And I, I worked every angle I could to get that acceptance. And it worked. And it turns out that's how a lot of stuff gets done in life. And so what you just described was how most things work. But most of us think we're the only one who works it like that. And, it, oh, everyone else must have got in easy. Everyone else must have had it in. Everyone else must have done something special or, they, you know, I must be the outcast of this game. Not true. Anything we want, if you're repetitive enough, you get there. I'll tell you the one time it didn't work. The one time it didn't work was with a guy named Seth Godin that I wanted on my podcast. And what happened was I wasn't the one doing the reach out. Someone on my team had worked with him previously, and I didn't know she was doing this. She was emailing him every single day on his personal email address, asking him to come on the show. And she wrote him. He said, no. She wrote him again the next day. He said, still no. She wrote him again the next day. <laughs> she had done this for about two months every day. And at some point, he wrote back, no offense, I'm more of a papa bear kind of guy, not a baby bear kind of guy, if that makes sense. <laughs> Ouch. When I finally read that, I went, I totally get it. That's true. I mean, he's one of the godfathers of marketing. He's a really big deal. He's launched Victoria's Secrets campaign. Like this dude's the dude. I get it. I'm not offended by that. I see truth in it. Um, and when my brand has a million people on my email list, I'm sure he'll want to hop on and say hi, but I'm not, <laughs> right. I wasn't there yet at that point. And so I was totally fine with it. Fast forward, we both got hired to speak at the same event in, in Toronto. So I was like, isn't that interesting? My face is right <laughs> next to his at the same event. So I arrived, he arrived. Uh, when I got there, the promoter of the event or the person in charge of it said, oh my gosh, you have to meet Seth. He's going to love you. <laughs> I, went, I don't know about that. I'm, um, I'm not so sure he's going to be real excited to see me, you know, pop up backstage on him. She's like, no, he's going to love you. Come with me. And I was like, okay, I'm open to it, but I don't think he's going to be thrilled. And, and she didn't know anything that happened. Long story short, we get to the dressing room, the door opens, he, she goes and gets him. He comes to the door. He walks up very nicely and goes, Nice to meet you. The answer is still no. <laughs> and I was like, I wasn't even asking. So we talked for a few seconds, pleasantry, saying hello. He's a very, very nice guy, and I love what he does. My wife worked with him on the launch of the Victoria's Secret campaign for marketing. Um, wonderful guy, brilliant guy. Fast forward, what landed up happening later was awesome. I was in the audience, of course, listening to his speech uh, when he presented there. And afterwards, he took questions. So I raised my hand. I'm like, I want to talk to this guy. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask him, will you be on my show in front of everyone? <laughs> I, I figured he was going to say no anyway. So I didn't try that. But I did have a question about finding your own footing. Purple cow, how do you stand out and be unique? So I raised my hand and said, hey, what would you tell your kid if they wanted to stand out and be unique in the marketing space? So if they decided to get into the business you're in, what would you tell them on how to present their purple cow, how to be unique and different. Now, that was a very, very targeted question. I know his son works within his company. So I knew what I was asking. I was asking it on purpose because I wanted to see his thought process as a father about it. And he, he stopped and turned it around on me. He goes, I don't think this has anything to do with me. I was like, oh, it does. <laughs> but I didn't have a mic, so he couldn't hear my reaction. And, and he said, I think this has to do with you and your dad. You're in the same industry. I've watched your stuff. And this was a beautiful compliment. He said, I've watched your stuff. I've followed you for a while. I like what you do. He says, if you're asking what makes you different from all the rest in your space, it's because you actually care about people. And I know a lot of people in your industry and they don't really care. I went, wow, that's cool. 
And then I had the weirdest conundrum I've ever had. <laughs> How the hell do you write that on a website? <laughs> <laughs> Woke jerkrobbins.com. I care. And I was like, no, if you ever go to a website that says I care, I immediately think bullshit. If you really care, you wouldn't have to write it on your homepage. You'd show me. So I was like, that was the most helpful yet unhelpful marketing advice I've ever received. <laughs> Is the answer this, still no? Yes. Still to this day, I don't know how to write that piece of marketing tip from him, but that's the one time it has never worked for getting Seth Godin on my show. At some point he will be on and I'll get to tell that story and it ends with, and now he's here, but now is not yet. I'm still growing and he's, he's a, he's amazing at what he does. So I'm, I'm not the fit for him yet. I'll get it. Uh, but that's the one time it didn't work. At the same time, though, it became a beautiful, beautiful, insightful lesson for me to have one of the godfathers of modern marketing give me insight to what my brand really stands for. It's very useful, but it didn't get him on the show. It didn't work. <laughs> Yet. It will. That's the beauty of learn it, living it, and giving it, right? I love, love, love that book. I got just a couple more things. You've been so gracious with your time. I can't even tell you how exciting this is for us to have you on the show, but I got a couple things I want to go down really quickly. One, you know, people that say it comes easy, you already explained that, right? Sometimes your heart is later on in life. It may have come easy. Obviously, you are up and coming in this, man. Your information is just astronomically beautiful uh, for people to learn from and, and make a change in their life. Is it hard getting out of the shadows? Has that been a little bit of a, a, an issue in your world? No, I'm not competitive with him. So I used to be really stressed out all the time, hence the random grays at 37. <laughs> um, and part of my stress was the pressure I was putting on myself to try to transform millions, to reach billions, to, to, to do all this stuff. And when I was doing it, I was so hungry to try to do more, 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 more. But it never, it was insatiable. It was never enough. No matter, I'd be like, look, we had a video reach a million people this week. And I'm like, so? And, and I want more. Why not a hundred million? What the hell? I mean, some girl does something stupid and she reaches a billion people. Why doesn't mine? And I was pissed about it. Hmm. And I sat down one day and I said, what am I really doing all this for? What's the real message? What's the real mission underneath all this? And something clicked in my head and it was simple. It said to reach the person who needs it most at the moment they need it with the message they need. I don't know who they are, where they are or what they're going through, but I'm going to create something today that's going to get to them at just the moment they need it. And when that shifted, our reach expanded exponentially. And I was like, I don't know what just changed. I've always wanted to help people. How is this different? And what I realized is it became less about me trying to hit my number to prove to myself that I'm special enough or good enough. And it became more about literally just trying to get to that person when they needed us with the message they needed. And I don't know who, where, or what they're going through, but I, that was the only goal we were after. And as soon as it became all about them and not about us anymore, all of a sudden it really took off. And as simple as that sounds, um, to give you an example of how amazing that can be, I got a handwritten letter one time from an airman who had been deployed. She came home from war, had PTSD, and she wrote me a letter that said, Mr. Robbins, I have horrible PTSD. I'm an active duty member. I came home from a horrible war situation for the last week, uh, my PTSD has been so intense that I've had my firearm in my mouth every night wanting to pull the trigger and end my life. I can't imagine having to live like this anymore. She said, this week, someone gave me a copy of your book as just a random gift. I read the first few chapters and I wanted to let you know, it reminded me of my reason of why I want to keep living. Thank you for that. Man, and I thought I... about that and I was like, there's no better success in business. I mean, people talk about being a New York Times bestseller, but if their book didn't get to that person who needed it, who gives a shit what the title is? Versus if that book landed in those people's hands at the moment they needed it and it reminded them to keep on living, 
that's the ultimate success of a piece of material that was put together to go into the world and serve someone at that level. And I had no, I had no guess that that would have happened with that book. I wrote that book as kind of a, a summary of 10 years of my life. And I had no clue it was going to have that level of depth to reach someone in a moment like that. And it has, and I think that's the biggest success of something like that. Man, can I, can I just tell you this? Um, oh, my God, just as you were sitting there saying that, this is why, again, I want people to follow you. I want people to listen to your information. You just hit me square in the face, man. Um, you know, we, we sit and we do these amazing stories, and some of these stories are just regular, everyday people, real-life, real stories. And, you know, I was always in that constant battle of, man, we need to get the celebrity on so we can get our numbers, but really get our numbers for real-life, real stories so we can impact the masses, not just the elite. And... I needed to hear that today, brother. That is, uh, that is the most amazing message. I think it was directed actually right towards me, although I know millions are probably doing that. And you do. We've, you know, I've struggled uh, internally myself with that idea. Like, my God, you, know, you want to get it out to everybody, but then is that my ego wanting to have the million views? Or, or you know, what is it that is causing me to do that? But I don't want to see it fail. And, and you think, hey, the best way of not failing is to you know, volume cures all problems is, is one of the things we always talked about in clinic. And it was like, I needed to hear that today. And I appreciate that, man. That, that was worth a million bucks right there for me. And, oh, God, I, I just want to tell you how grateful I am that you have come on our show. I do not, I want to make sure that we spend just a little bit of time here telling people how they can hear your information. How do they follow you? Tell us everything that, that uh, a person can to get in contact with you, other than bugging the hell out of Jessica. <laughs> Jessica's great. She's good at what she does. You tell her I appreciate her. I will. So before I do that real quick, it, it's a societal issue that causes this. There's three buckets inside of any human. I call them buckets. It's just thoughts, but I call them three buckets. And the buckets are, I am enough. I have enough. I'm loved enough. And for someone to feel full in all three of those buckets, when they are full, when they can affirm, I am enough as a human being. There's not a single thing I need to do or, or be or create anything. I just, I am enough being me, breathing, being here right now. I'm enough. Second, I'm loved enough. I love myself. I fill up my love bucket every day. I pour that love out into everyone I cross paths with. Third, I have enough. I look around in my life. As long as I have my heartbeat, as long as I have my breath in my body, as long as I'm alive, I have more than enough to have a great day. When those align you don't need anything else from the world. And all of a sudden, everything someone does at that point is to spill over all that goodness into other people. When any of those three buckets don't, aren't full, they don't feel like they are enough, they don't feel like they have enough, they don't feel like they're loved enough, you start getting very peculiar behavior of people trying to do things thinking it's going to fill the bucket. And what's interesting, we live in a society of comparison where so I'll take podcasts. Someone puts up our podcast. How do you know your podcast is successful? Because it has 200 million views. Is that really what makes it successful? Or is what makes it successful the fact that it got to the human who needed it at the very moment they needed it most? They can be argued either way. Well, we get paid a lot for our podcast. We save lives. I don't know. Depends on what's most important. For some people, making money is more important than saving a life. For some people, getting to that person who needed you, way more important than any amount of money someone could give you. You can replace the money. You can't replace that human. And so there's an element in there that's important. And what it stems from is having those three buckets full. And so figuring out and answering the question, what would have to happen for me to be able to completely 100% authentically affirm, I am enough, I have enough, I'm loved enough. When those are full and your list is checked, at that point, all it is is spilling over the extra to everyone else you cross paths with. And so just side note on that one. Put beautiful. On it. it was beautiful. I think it's really important in society today. How do you know your podcast worked? I know it worked because I got a letter in the mail that said it changed someone's life. That's how I know this is a successful podcast. Versus I know this is a great podcast because look how many people downloaded it. That's a vanity stat versus a real stat. And so I dig on people a little because we've been trained, and it's a, it's a training. We've been trained to pay attention to vanity statistics instead of real things that matter. 
And so I, I harp on people to go, hey, yeah, your show has been downloaded two, 200 million times. Great. Tell me about the people whose lives has changed. Tell me about the businesses that have been built off this. Tell me about the people, even on your team, that it supports to have a job. Tell me about what this has really done, not a number that can be altered and played with on the internet. And the sad part is there's a lot of ways to game those systems. So a lot of those giant numbers you see are partially real. Right. And they're also toyed with because people found out when you toy with the numbers and get them big enough, you can get attention in all kinds of places you never could before. And what it's stemming off of is a bucket that has a hole in it and their insatiable hunger to try to be around or get to or have more is causing them to game the system and bullshit their way through just to get access to something they think will finally make them feel whole. And it never does. Well, you know, we have uh, Seth coming on the show next week. Uh, I'm going to put in a pretty no. a surprise <laughs> entrance him. I'll be like, I'm back. I'm back. Look at you. I'm just going to start figuring out every show he's going to be on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a surprise <laughs> guest entrance on every show. Hey, you know what? Hold Sometimes we have a surprise guest coming in. I pop on. He's like, are you serious? You need to get out of my shows. He's like, it's still no. It's still no. It's still no, Robbins. Get out of here. Oh my God. I bet we could make a YouTube series of me chasing Seth <laughs> getting told no a million times. It'll probably be really funny. Me showing would, up in man. random places. I mean, uh, I figured out how to show up on interviews he was being interviewed on. Alex, oh, I'm sorry. If uh, people want to find us, I forgot. Uh, yeah, Instagram or LinkedIn. If you're a business professional and you want to connect with us on business stuff, find me on LinkedIn. Um, if you're, if, if personally you want to connect and, and you want inspiration, motivation, find me on Instagram. So I've learned to sort of relationship, personal performance, health, and, and sleep, Instagram, business growth, find me on LinkedIn and connect. So if you split like that, you'll find me in the right place and I'll be able to support you either way. Thank you a million for, for coming on the show. Again, we want to highlight you just, uh, the amazing stuff you do, but you know what? We're like everyone else out there that you coach. We're trying to do something great. We're trying to get that message to the right person at the right time. Um, you can see we're, we're not a big corporate showboat type of thing, but we're doing our best and we're doing it the best every day. Um, but people like you, uh, you help us and we're humbled and uh, I can't thank you enough for doing it. Of course. Thank you for having me.